0: Well, good morning everyone. Once again, as always, thank you for being here. And I say that because I really mean it. I don't say it because I have to say it. I say it because genuinely I'm pleased that you're here. Thank you for dedicating this part of the morning to the study of the Word of God. This morning we're continuing in Jesus' response to the rejection of his leadership by the Pharisees. Once again, and I continually just go back and remind us, Jesus has come into Jerusalem on what is called Palm Sunday. And he has entered Jerusalem to finalize and bring to conclusion God's eternal purpose for his people. So that in him and by him and through him alone, God's purpose, God's presence, would be finally established in his people, not just with his people. And so, in keeping with that, he enters the city as the king who has come to conquer. Not conquering the Romans, but has come to conquer the one who has usurped his authority in the Garden of Eden. You remember in 2 Corinthians four four, Satan is called the god of this world. And so the battle that is going on here, the contest that you see in these verses, in these chapters, is not primarily a battle or a contest of theologies and philosophies, of politics, of social agenda, although that's there as a secondary issue. But the great contest is the contest between God's purpose in Christ and that purpose which has been thwarted temporarily by God's will, allowing it by Satan himself. And so as the Son of God contests and rejects and gives answers to, and if you would, debates these men. What he's really doing here and what he sees he is doing, he's not just talking to some Pharisees and some Sadducees and some elders. He's not just answering some questions with some parables. He's not just explaining the word. But he is undoing the very grip of Satan That Satan has had upon God's people. He is breaking the grip of Satan which will come at the cross. And he is exposing Satan's lies through these discussions, through these interactions. And so let's be careful as we read the word. Look at these Pharisees and what they're doing. How can these leaders be this way? Well, what we need to see behind all this is the strategy of Satan. And that strategy, which we see exercised and manifested in these leaders, and we'll see it in many of the people. Remember when Jesus is arrested, crucify him. That strategy is still going on today. (laughs) So that we as believers must understand that the enemy is not that person or that system or that whatever. But behind that, there is an enemy who is empowering, who is energizing, who is leading that system, those people, to oppose the word of God. Amen? We just have to make sure we see that. And especially in the church, as we see difficulties and rivalries and oppositions among us and between people. We must see that there is an enemy's strategy here. Paul calls it the schemes of Satan. And in 2 Corinthians 2.11 even says, we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Remember when he's talking about forgiveness and a lack of forgiveness. So let's make sure we see that behind all of this is orchestrated a demonic plan to overcome the purpose of God. And that demonic plan, even though Jesus has conquered the authority of Satan at the cross and has risen from the dead in victory, and his people, we, the church, are now living in the victory of Jesus, that same demonic opposition is being waged against. Anybody feel that opposition from time to time? Do we know what's happening? Okay. And so, In this third parable, Jesus answers the question, or again, illustrates and addresses the question of who gave you this authority? Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you think you're doing here? By driving out the money changers in the court of the Gentiles. And he answers it this time by using an Old Testament um, analogy that is very common and very vivid to the people of the Old Testament the analogy of marriage. And so, Marriage was vividly expressed, vividly expressed. Sorry, the union between God and His people through the Old Covenant. So, a marriage was a very central understanding of how God and His people are covenant. In fact, marriage is so central as an analogy in the Bible. How many of us remember that the Bible begins with a marriage, and it ends if you go to Revelation nineteen nine with the wedding feast of the Lamb, remember, a marriage. And so the bookends, if you would, of the Bible are within marriage. The first marriage of God and his people, as he creates them to be in his image, and that purpose is forfeited by Adam. And so God's purpose, if you would, is to send the groom, the groom who had created a people to be his bride. In the garden, now God will send his groom into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to win his bride back to him. Amen? And so, who is the bride of Christ? We are the bride of Christ. So let's look at chapter 22, verses 1 to 14 verses 1 to 3a. 3a meanings the first part of the verse, obviously. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of God may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Now, this should be very vivid in our minds, because what great event has just occurred across the pond? Remember the royal wedding. Now, think about the royal wedding. Keep that in your mind. I think it's a good illustration, the royal wedding. The queen has sent out invitations into the country. Come to the wedding of my grandson. Now, how many of us would really like to have been invited? I know all of them. No, no, truly. Wouldn't it have been a wonderful occasion to have been there? Can you imagine? Phil, I've been invited to the wedding. Liz, you've been invited to the wedding, the royal wedding. You are of a select group of people. You see, it says something about the queen, and it says something about us. She ain't inviting just nobody. She's inviting A certain people. A certain people. You have to be a select group of people to get invited to this wedding. So here's the analogy. A king is going to have a wedding for his son and he sends out the invitation. And he sends it out to the servants. Look at this. To call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? To call those who were invited to the wedding feast. God has a people. You remember in John one twelve, what does it say? And Jesus came to his own and his own what? Did not what? Receive him. Do you remember that? So here's what's happening. God has sent out an invitation. When did the call of Israel become his people? See, because Israel is that nation that is to be, if you would, God's bride upon the earth. To show the excellencies of God's name and his presence. And to declare his glory throughout the world. This is the purpose of Israel. This is why God has called them. And so when did God call his people? How many of you remember Ephesians 1, 4? When does God call us to be his people? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. How many of you remember, some of you may not, but some, how many of you remember the day you were saved? So what, what does that mean? That, that you were saved by God in a temporal or time sense on a particular day at a particular time under a certain circumstance. We understand that. But all that was happening is that God was manifesting and bringing to fruition and reality to us his eternal purpose for having created us. We were created by God to be his people. And when it pleased God, remember what Paul says in Galatians 1, when it pleased God, he revealed his son to me. Remember that? You remember that in, it happened in what chapter of Acts? Nine. Chapter 9, all of you remember that. Now, when was Israel called to be God's bride? Exodus 3, you remember that began the whole process. Now, why did God call Israel to be his people? Well, what is, why does God call any of us to be his people? Well, he called me to be his people. Listen carefully what I'm going to say, and be careful how you listen to me. He called me to be his son because he knew I would receive him and trust him. That's not correct, but it sounds correct. Oh, what do you mean it's not correct? You see, God Romans 829, for God whom God foreknew, he predestined. Well God knew ahead of time. Does God know everything ahead of time? Anything kept from God? God's knowledge is comprehensive. His knowledge of himself is comprehensive, therefore his knowledge of his creation has to also be comprehensive. There cannot be anything in the created order that's not part of God's knowledge. And God's knowledge of himself and of his purpose and how he's going to accomplish his purpose is comprehensive. Nothing's left out. And so God looked down eternity. And Charlie, he knew that on a particular day he would call your name and you would say, yes. that's true, isn't it? But you see, God did not call that man because he said yes. He called that man, let's look back in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4b, in love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. Do Do you remember those words? So, Charlie, how did you get saved? Because God loved you, and because God loved you, he created you to be his son, and because of that, he called you, and as a result of God's call, do you, everybody know who this man is? And because God called you, having loved you first, God first loved us, remember 1 John? Therefore, you received Christ. Now that's what the word says. Just one verse would sum it up. First John 1 John 1.13. We were born not of the will of man, not of the flesh, not of whatever, but of the will of God. Now I spent a little time on that because there is a confusion. And so what does that mean? <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm really debating about something here, and I really need your prayers and, and some revelation here. I've already done about most of the work for next week's Sunday school class. I don't remember what it's about, but I've done most of the work on it. But I am still not sure if I want to do this. But at least I'll ask you to do it. How many of you watch The Royal Wedding? Only about three of you? Okay. I want you to do this. I want you to go online and I want you to look up the sermon that was preached at the royal wedding. I want you to go online and listen to the sermon that was preached. Okay. And I want you to listen to the sermon. I don't know, it's 15, 20, 25 minutes. It's about the length of a sermon that takes us to clear our throats. And I know that a pastor who preached would love to have gone 3 hours. Well, I know that. You can see it in him. And I'm with him on that. He is energized. He is ready. And he's so untypical of what these high class Brits are waiting to hear. He's a black guy from Chicago for for goodness sakes. And he preaches a sermon And it is a sermon filled with feeling and emotion. And I have to say, I love that about so many of the black pastors. But I want you to listen to the sermon in a discerning way. And we may or may not talk about it next week. I'm not sure. Because it has to do with critically discerning the will of God. So if I say to you, Did God save you because he knew ahead of time that you would receive Christ? Well, Adrian, in one way, yes. But if that's the reason for God saving you, in your estimation, you have missed what God is doing here and have put the emphasis in the secondary rather than on the primary. So the call goes out to Israel, be my people. Look at verse 3b in chapter 2 of Matthew. Look at the last part. You get the royal invitation. Comes to your door, hand delivered. It's gold embossed. And it has a great seal. The seal of the sovereign. And you open it. And Johnny, it says, come to the wedding of my grandson. Nah, I'm going to be listening to LSU tomorrow. Now, for Jean, that would have been the answer. She's not listening to LSU tomorrow. She refuses to do that. She's listening today. <laughs> right, Phil? She's still astounded that we beat Florida and then we beat Arkansas. She still can't believe it. What? What? Well, 11, nothing. Yeah, I suppose so. But you say no. And look at verse 3b. They would not come. Now, what's wrong here? I do want to get through this. Oh, Lord. What's wrong here? But I I do need to also, I think, take the time I believe God wants me to. We might say, how could those people have missed this? How could they have said, Shane, no. You're going to the royal wedding. And the royal wedding is going to involve several social activities. So everyone who's involved and invited, rather, to the royal wedding is also, Mary, invited to a breakfast with Prince Henry. Harry. You did know his name, Harry Henry. You're invited to a breakfast. Now, Liz, would you go to the breakfast? Because wouldn't you go? After I get my hand. After you get your hair done? Hat. hat? Oh, hat. Oh, well, yeah, you have to have a hat. Did you see some of those hats? <laughs> But would you go to the breakfast? How many of you would refuse to go to the breakfast, but you'll go to the wedding itself? Wouldn't it be, how can you just just choose just to go to the wedding and not the breakfast? I mean, Joe, that, that's crazy, isn't it? Jody? Now listen, God has invited us To the royal wedding of his own son. And to celebrate that every Sunday. And the celebration of the actual wedding will occur at 10. But the breakfast will occur at 8.45. (laughs) (laughs) And the question is, seriously... What is it about believers that we believe we can choose what part of this celebration that we'll go to simply based on something in and about and for ourselves? Think about it. We are invited to the most royal celebration and the Lord says the big celebration is going to be at 10 but I want you all to be there during this part of the celebration because this part is essential in a different kind of way and I want you to be there too And so 10% of the people who are going to be at St. James Chapel go to the breakfast. What? for Warfare. Israel's history has always been one of rejection. This, this this what I'm going to tell you. I love it because I am so innocent of it. And I like to share this because I know that since I am not guilty of this, I can share it in a way that I can put everybody on the spot because I don't do this. How did Israel, having been called and constituted at Horeb, having been already delivered from the grip of the Egyptians. And they cross the Red Sea. Now, can you imagine crossing the Red Sea, that, this miracle? And they get a couple, of three days out there and what? They ain't got what? We don't like the water. And so they begin to, what was that word? In the Hebrew, murmur. We call it grumble or complain. And they began to grumble and complain. And their grumbling and complaints were against Moses and Aaron. I'm not saying that because I'm an elder in this church. That's, this is a general comment. But essentially, what was the problem of grumbling against the Lord's work? The Lord's purpose. The Lord's means. The Lord's provision. The way God did it, and how he did it, and why he did it, and when he did it, etc. Well, if you look in Numbers eleven twenty, the Lord says, you have rejected the Lord. Their grumbling was against the Lord. So, you see, I'm not, I don't have a problem in this area. I never complain about anything. I evaluate everything. <laughs> and so, how... How much I need to remember this. How much? You're invited to the royal wedding. And you are one of a very select group of people. And they put you in a seat in the chapel. So you can see and hear everything. But you're sitting next to Sue Heffernan. I don't get along with Sue Heffernan. Well, I wonder why they put me here. I wish I could be sitting next to uh, Sherry Meyer. I like her better than Sue. Or whatever the issue is, isn't the fact that we're in the wedding enough to overcome these kinds of complaints? I mean, tell me truthfully. Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be? I I need to remember this. I need to think this way. What on this side of heaven, and I'm going to have an opportunity to uh, be challenged in this. I know that. I can smell it coming. The enemy sharpening his, his spear. What on this side of heaven is so significant, In whatever category, to what extent, as compared to the fact that we're in the royal wedding. What is it? Even if LSU had lost. Gene's over there sweating right now. I don't know if I can take that example, but many others I can go with. Verse 5, but they paid no... uh, Wait, sorry. And again, verse 4, and again, he sent other servants, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, you see whose dinner it is, and have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But you see, they continually say no. Over the years, the Lord sent prophets to these men and these women. Verse 5 and 6, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while... The rest seized the servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. By the way, do you notice what Jesus says here? He said they didn't come to the feast because they went to their farm of the business. Now, is Jesus against farming and work? No. But you see, what he's complaining about or revealing here is that sin which says, my responsibilities, my desires, my business, my work, my whatever, is a primary. And I will judge and, and decide my life based on things about and for me. For me. And so what I say to folks is this, and I have to say it to myself regularly. Regularly. And there's an example of of a man in this church. And I'm not going to say his name because he didn't give, give me permission. He was offered a much, much better job in another city. Much better job. Better meaning more money. Of the same company. Transfer. Can you imagine almost doubling your salary? And he prayed about it. There's the key. And he felt, no, he turned it down. And he turned it down on the basis, he told them, that he felt that God wanted him to remain here in this church, in this city. Can you imagine he turning down? I mean, that has to be God, Mike, because I got an increase in salary. It's got to be God. God. It's a better neighborhood. It's nicer. And so he said no. And he said no with the, what word do I want here? The, uh, not, not the danger, the, the opportunity, the, uh, that they could have fired him. What word do I want there? with a risk, that they could have fired him. So he's not only not going to take the job, but in not taking the job, Nick, he could have lost this job. And we talked several times about this. And he said, God's work in me and my family in this church is more important. Harold, he asked God. It wasn't that going to another city was wrong in and of itself. The danger was that he, too many believers don't, they look, and God can also give you answers through these other issues, nice home, but that's fine, but make sure you ask God and ask him in relation to how he's using you in the church here. And if he's released you from that today, sorry, he came to me not too long ago. And they've kept him and not only kept him. But they gave him an increase in salary. Phil, you've experienced this a few times, haven't you? Where God has come through in a way when you said, hey. I'm not compromising. You see. For the people who had been invited to the. Wedding feast, Israel, the leaders. For them, life's call was louder and more alluring than the king's call. That reminds me of First John two fifteen through seventeen. I'm sorry. Yeah, First John two fifteen through seventeen. The king was angry. I guess so. So he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Did you notice that? Be careful when we read the word. We need to really see what Jesus said. What did he say? The king did what? He sent what? His troops. When did God send his troops to destroy Israel? Come on. When did he do that? In 701 BC, he called the Assyrians as his troops. In 605, and then in 586 BC, he called the Babylonians to be his troops. In 70 AD, he called the Romans to be what? His troops. He called his troops. You see, this isn't figurative language. This is literally what happened. And you remember, I think I referenced Second Kings 17 a couple of weeks ago. I think it's beginning verse 7 all the way to, I think, was it, what, 40, 42, or 43, however long it goes. And over and over again, the Lord said, destruction has come upon you because you refused. You didn't. You did. I did this, and you wouldn't. I said, go here. You wouldn't. Over and over and over again. Verses 8 to 10, then he says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding, to the wedding feast as many as you will find. And these servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with the guests. I think one of the things we need to be very careful about in... In heaven is this we need to be warned about something very possibly unpleasant. There won't be any vacant seats at the wedding feast, and we're gonna to have to sit next to people that mmm mmm. Mm. Aren't you glad? God sees us as righteous in his son, and no more according to the flesh. Amen, amen. In these verses, the emphasis turns from those whom the Lord originally had invited to another people. Remember, in verse forty-one, in the last uh, parable, the Pharisee said, "You know, they'll they'll take the vineyard and destroy those men and give it to another people. Remember, the, the Gentiles." And so God gives it said here in another to another people, again. Echoes of Genesis 1, the nations, subdue the earth. And also echoes of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, a father of nations. And all this is promised and anticipated. See, those outsiders were considered to be not worthy of being God's people. One of the problems that Israel had developed over the years was this problem that still plagues the church today, and that is ethnicity. Ethnicity. Ethnicity still plagues us, in it, doesn't it? You think that's an issue that's no longer an issue in the church? It's a main problem still. The enemy is using our racial differences. Look around. You got people in here not of the same race. Look around. Yeah, people in here not of the same cultural background, financial background, social background, educational. Look at this group. Isn't God incredible to take all of us who were never in ourselves worthy, but by, as I said to Charlie, the eternal foreknowledge decree of God to love us, he called us into his kingdom. Not based on anything in and of or about us intrinsically. Aren't you glad about that? You see, that begins to reduce my ability to be bragging. I think somebody said something like, "Lest none of us brag. It was a scripture about... Ephesians two, eight and nine, lest anybody brag. It's the work of God. Ethnicity. You see, the Pharisees, and you see this in John chapter eight, they understood that they as a nation were accepted by God simply because of their bloodline. We are Abraham's children. Abraham is our father, he tell they tell Jesus in eight twenty eight thirty-nine. And Jesus says, are you kidding? God can make children of these stones here. Again, once again, always pulling out from underneath us any supposed dependence or understanding that we are in the kingdom because of something about us intrinsically. But you see, in the parable, their worth had nothing to do Their worth had to do not with their intrinsic worth, but with their having been invited worth. Does that make sense to you? We had to be very careful because I've heard believers say this. Well, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Well, in one sense, that's correct. But in another sense, it's not correct. Do you remember the parable that Frank so promotes in Alpha Retreat? What is it, Frank? Uh, Which one is it? Uh, The the, the prodigal son. You have it written on your forehead, brother. And in Luke 15, the prodigal son. You remember that? And so he goes out having gained the inheritance. And he wastes it all. And finally, right before verse 17, he's in the pig house, P-I-G, pig house. That's where he is, and he comes to his senses, verses 17. Listen, he came to his senses. He woke up one day to the reality of, oh, what is going on in my life? Now, behind the scenes was the Holy Spirit changing his hard heart and turning on the light so he could see the filth and the mess that he was in that previously was okay. He came to his senses. And so what does he do? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to my father, father, I have sinned against you and heaven. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me as one of your. So he goes home. And the father standing on the hill sees him coming. He sees him coming. And when he recognizes the boy, he ties up his robe. That's how you had to do it. He had to tie it up so he could run down the mountainside to see his son. And when he got to his son, what did he do? He kissed him. And he said, put the robe on me, on him, etc. And the son says to the father, I have sinned. Okay, you're right. But then when the son begins to speak about not being worthy, the Bible says, but he stopped. Why was this son worthy as a son? Because the father made him his son. And that is making him his son, bestowed on him by the Father's decree, his worth. Does that make sense to you? So in Christ, as a believer, am I or have I been made worthy to participate in the things of God? How many of you still struggle with that? Come on. Don't we struggle with that kind of a thing? I'm worthy to call on God. I'm worthy. I think it's a struggle for all of us or for many of us. But the fact of the matter is we have to differentiate worthiness. Worthiness of a fleshly sort, of an earthly, you know, uh, of an earthly origin. You're right. You're just in the pig house. But we are made worthy. Why? Because we have been invited into and have now become residents of the big house. Remember the big house? That's the house where the rich folks live. We've come from the pig house to the big house. Because of the prodigal, and Frank would tell you this. What does that word mean, Frank? Excessive love of the Father. now what verse did I just quote differently to you? Because of God's prodigal love, First John 3:1 See what love the Father has, what prodigal upon us, excessively bestowed upon us. First Th- Second Thessalonians, we have been made again worthy by the call of God into the wedding feast. Of his son by the gospel. The gospel has made us worthy. Listen to this. Thessalonians 1.11. I'm not sure if you have it in your notes. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. We are worthy. And we are to be walking worthy of the call. What verse did I quote then? Be careful to what? I Paul. A prisoner of the Lord. Exhort you that you What? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4, 1. So, you see, this worth is a result of God loving them, not the result of any of their racial issues. They thought that their race got them in, but it was God's love that got them in. Well, let me go through this as quickly as I can. But when the king, 11 to 13, came back, to the guest he saw there was a man with no wedding garment so you're in the you're, you've been invited to the royal wedding and you're going to go in there in your shorts and you know you dressing down for this we dressing down because you see the society says we can dress down you see the society says it don't matter no more how we look am I right about that does the society say that And so we come to this royal feast. Too many. I think, and I know I'm old-fashioned and old and all that and things have changed, but I still think it, Butch. Dressed as if we're just going to slum with somebody. I think, may I give you my opinion? I think for this feast... For this day, we should be dressed better than any other day of the week. Not like every other day of the week. It's just my opinion. I don't want you to put you under any obligation, because seriously, I don't. That's just me. That's an old man, Peter Davidson. And so, hopefully, I would want to look better this day with the people of God at the celebration of the Son. And look at verse 12. What does the king say to this man who is an interloper who has come in here uninvited and he has the wrong kind of clothing And Can you imagine at the royal feast this guy comes in with shorts and a t-shirt? <laughs> How far do you think he would have gotten past the guards at the door? <laughs> Celeste, you think they'd have gotten past? He, you're not coming in here. Why? You're not dressed. And what does the king say? Friend. What kind of a greeting is that? Friend. What does that mean? Why does it call him friend? When I saw that, I said, okay, there's something strange here. Because, I, I, help me to remember, Lord, I think it's chapter 20, 22, and 26 of Matthew. Jesus uses the word friend from a different Greek word than the other times he uses it. And in fact, when Judas is about to portray Jesus, he says friend. It's a word which means Okay, pal, what you doing here? It's a different word. It's not the word that has to do with phileo. You know, friendship, love. Okay, pal, what are you doing here? It's that kind of a word. That's the word that's being used here. And so the man is put out. What, what is he not wearing? He's not wearing the robes of righteousness. And I'm going to just cut this short which we are all given. And when Jesus comes back, what does it say? He will return what? In the clouds of glory. Is that what he says? Mm, Be careful. Will he return in the clouds of glory or with the clouds of glory? Prepositions are important. The clouds of glory, what does that mean? Hey, cloudy day, maybe he's coming back. All believers wearing the white robes of righteousness, thousands upon thousands will return with the Lord and it's going to look like a big cloudy day. He's returning with the saints, with the clouds of glory. With them. Because we are his glorious ones as he calls us. And look at verse 14. For many are called but few are chosen. The gospel call goes out to the world, and those who hear are God's people. Why? This is what Jesus says in John 10. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Typically, we would think you're not part of my flock because you do not believe. Now, How many of you would have said, okay, you're not part of my flock because you don't believe? That's how it's preached too often. But that's not what it says. And you see, probably Jesus' theology was a little off here. He says, you don't believe. Why? Because you're not chosen. Now, that's tough. So I want to finish with this. Called and chosen. Call goes out to the world. The clarion call of the gospel. Whosoever will. Jesus Christ has died to save you. The, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. We begin to preach the gospel, clarion call to all the world. And those who are those who have been loved by God from the very beginning are touched by the Holy Spirit to hear and respond correctly to that call and a birth into the kingdom of God by faith. Amen? Isn't it what, right? So called and chosen, to. Equal truths. Sometimes we want to step on one for the advantage of the other. Two equal truths in the word of God about God and his means. However, these two truths seem on the surface to be contradictory, but they are not. They are complementary. They are not two contradictory terms. So as we seek to better understand the word of God, we must keep in mind a distinction between truth and... And our understanding of that truth. How many of you know there is a difference? Very often. There is a gulf between truth and our understanding. However. This is a gulf that has been created by God. And this gulf must not be crossed. Or bridged. By the speculations of man. Every biblical truth. Everything about the Bible must stand upon and be built upon the essential nature and character of God. Anything that may look contrary to that may be confusing, but it's not contrary. And we have to be careful not to adjust our theology in order to make them look complementary. Amen? We have to be careful how we do this. Many heresies have come about because the natural mind has tried to figure out these imponderable mysteries of our eternal God. See you next week.